Okay, um, let's get started, people. Good to see you all here. Um, my name is Professor Andrew Chadwick. I am a professor of political communication and I'm the director of the Online Civic Culture Centre, or for those of you who don't know me. Today, we're really honoured to have Carl Miller here. Carl works at Demos Think Tank in the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media. Many of you will be familiar with his presence, uh, which goes far beyond his excellent writing. and. Um, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at his new book, The Death of the Gods, I strongly recommend you do because it's a really exciting piece of work. We were just talking about it over lunch and I was uh, saying just how great it is to see wonderful, wonderful storytelling and really lively and energetic writing, but also saying some really important things about the nature of power of all kinds of things being figured by the digital revolution. Um, and as we all know, we're living through particularly dark times when it comes to the role of digital media in public life. Unprecedentedly dark times, if I can use that term. And um, Carl has quite a lot to say about that. He's going to be speaking for about 30 minutes or so, um, which will give us a chance to have a Q&A session afterward. And so if you've got questions that you'd like to store up, please do uh, ask them after Carl has finished speaking. So it just remains for me to say uh, thanks again to Carl for coming, and um, over to you. Thanks a lot. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew, uh, and thank you so much, everyone, uh, for coming. Um, so digital power. I don't think any talk could begin on digital power with any other protagonist. Hey, any other protagonist than Grumpy Cat. Kind of just a funny looking cat on YouTube. Uh, Grumpy Cat is now worth the reported $76 million. You could buy Grumpy Cat Christmas cards. You could buy Grumpy Cat the game. Grumpy Cat's owner is a woman called Tabitha Bunderson, who has given up her job to manage Grumpy Cat full time. She takes Grumpy Cat around the world, opening malls, opening shopping centres. It is just a funny-looking cat on YouTube, but Grumpy Cat is also a cat which is crackling with viral power. Um, maybe less familiar, this is John Never Die Jacobs. John Jacobs mortgaged his house a couple of years ago to buy an entirely digital asteroid in the game Entropy Universe. Um, he started to sell mining rights for real money on his asteroid. He, he created a zoo, um, which brought together the rare digital menageries of Entropy Universe into a single place, which people, again, would pay real money to go and see. And then the piece de resistance of his asteroid, he built Club Never Die. Um, a club, again, that peaked the hottest party destination in Entropia. People would pay real money to go and party in Club Never Die, and he got married there at the same time as he got married in real life. Um, and then he sold mining rights, zoo, Club Never Diane asteroid um, about a year ago for $500,000. And this is, this is Jem and Gina. Um, Jem and Gina um, are best friends. They're just hugging each other. Um, but why is there a BBC camera that is there kind of capturing this moment? The reason that they're there is that although they've been best friends for seven years, it's the first time they've ever met in real life. Um, they're both members of a Facebook group kind of dedicated to getting through grievance and loss. Um, and Jen especially was going through financial troubles at the same time as grief. And she woke up one morning and there was a washing machine paid for by Gina on her front doorstep. They never met before in real life before that happened. And this is the first time that they have. Um, this, about a year and a half ago, I had all these different kinds of stories kind of floating around in my head. And I'm, I'm actually willing to bet, certainly with an, an audience as expert as this, that all of you, all of us, have each kind of encountered stories a bit like Grumpy Cat or a bit like Gem and Gina or not John Leverdye Jacobs, right? Like stories that have made us kind of stop and pause and think and maybe even feel that the world is changing around us, that the kind of, like the, the kind of social fabric is kind of seismically reshifting in ways which feel very profound. Um, this was a kind of like, this was a feeling that I had before I began a particular journey. Um, 
it was a kind of it was a it was a journey that, that literally um, was a very physical one. I was desperate to try and work out what on earth was going on, um, what on earth all of this meant. So I kind of I began to travel. I kind of it took me through kind of freezing cold courtyards in Berlin to meet cyber pranksters. It took me to kind of neon drenched Seoul to meet Hikikomori. Uh, people that only live their lives online, they never leave their rooms, uh, they never leave their houses. Um, it took me to an information warfare base incongruously surrounded by the rolling green hills of Berkshire. It took me to Kosovo to meet um, fake news merchants. Um, it took me to the heart of an online assassination market um, and, and many other places uh, as well. Uh, all of that was basically to try and understand the idea of power. Now, I got very interested in the idea of power. Power seemed to me to be an idea which writers actually have always turned to to try and understand their own grumpy cats and their own John Never Die Jacobses. Kind of Machiavelli turned to power when his own society was kind of shuffling out of the Dark Ages and into the Renaissance and ripping down the norms and convention of his own age. Um, Hobbes was understanding power when he was trying to make sense of a monarchy that had just been destroyed and reformed. Uh, Marx used the idea of power when his own society went through his own, their own industrial revolution. Foucault tried to understand power in ways that I cannot understand, um, as his own society was kind of shaking off the kind of norms and conventions uh, in the 60s. Power is this idea that's really useful because it kind of allows kind of you to like kind of borrow under the kind of day-to-day -day froth and ask the really kind of deep, hard questions about kind of what is actually happening in society, like who is in control. Look, power, as I understand it, and there's, so, there's more definitions of power than there even are writers about it, but, but power, as I understood it, is basically the ability to reach into each other's lives, to kind of change what those lives are like, to change the choices that people have and change the choices that people make. Um, and it can come in a kind of myriad, rainbow kind of number of different forms. Everything from hard, coercive forms of power through to financial forms and incentives through to kind of the, uh, the flow of ideas and persuasion. Power has many forms, but in one way or another, I think, it is the ability to reach into someone else's life and change what their life is really like. So power was the idea that I set off on my journey to try and find. Um, I knew that uh, I would never Google together the reality of power. So, so instead, what I tried to do was actually to, to, to try and meet the people um, and go to the places which would show me kind of what power today really looked like. I was keen on meeting the newly powerful, um, the newly powerless, and the people that kind of could open windows, be they fake news merchants or information warfare officers, into forms of power which I thought were broadly not well understood um, or, 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 or written about. So that was, that was the journey. Um, the, I, I saw power kind of changing in different landscapes, kind of whether it was politics or media or crime or warfare. In each of them, I thought power was kind of being one lost and transformed. There were organisations that are classically thought of as being incredibly powerful that I found far less so than, than I thought. Um, there was a whole new cast of actor that was, sent to, that was stepping centre stage in lots of these areas of life, I think, far more powerful than they are, than they are supposed um, or classically conceivable of being. And power, the nature of power, I thought, itself was, was, changing, was, was changing profoundly as well. I don't have time to go through all the different landscapes, so I will go through two. Two, perhaps, that I, kind of, I hope, anyway, will be the most interesting to you. We can, we can talk about the others in the Q&A at the end. Um, the first landscape is politics. So, on the surface, if we, if, we look at, if we look at what's reported on in politics, we look at what, what, what is often discussed, um, it looks like political parties have, had, have, have fallen in love with the digital age. You know, you've both got politicians that are able to kind of have this direct link to constituencies, to voters. You know, they don't need to go through the mainstream press anymore. And you've got, ever since Cambridge Analytica, you've got the kind of whole, kind of the exposure of a whole kind of rumbling, silent machinery of data collection. You know, never before have political parties, it seems, been able to learn so much about us all. Never before have we been able to understand our preferences so well. Never before they've been able to target their messages to us in such an immaculate and granular way. Um, but I don't think this is what is happening at all. 
In order to understand power and politics, we need to kind of excavate, I think. We need to start working down through deeper layers. We need to ignore the froth and bluster of Trump and Brexit and Cambridge Analytica for a moment. Because um, I think that power is shifting, actually, in ways which are far more deeper and interesting than that. Um, political parties are not in a loving embrace with the digital world. If anything, it's more of a chokehold. I think political parties are being ripped apart. Um, and to understand that first, let's, let's go over to Germany uh, to meet this woman. Does anyone recognise her? Her name is Marianne Grimmenstein. Um, I first got to know Marianne through, um, through Change.org. Um, so um, Gregor Hackmack is a man, he'd just become head of Germany's Change.org. If you don't know Change.org, it's a kind of online petition site. You load your campaign on there and, and Change.org is a way of kind of getting more people to kind of join your campaign and hopefully build momentum. And, and it has, it's, it's notched up some significant political wins around the world, Change.org. Um, Gregor was kind of leafing through a newspaper. He just joined Change.org. Um, he was looking for people to help. Who, can, who, who should I reach out to, Gregor was thinking. And he picked up one small German newspaper called Die Tageszeitung. Um, and in the middle of Die Tageszeitung, this small German newspaper was the only story that had been written on Marianne Grimmenstein's failed attempt to bring the German government to court. She, was, she tried to sue the German government. It was over a trade bill, an enormous trade deal that at that point was rumbling through the European Union, between the European Union and Canada. And for various reasons, Marianne Grimmenstein hated this. She thought it was unconstitutional, she thought it was unfair, she thought it gave too much power to corporates, and there didn't seem to be anything that she could do about it. Um, she, and she, she'd actually challenged the German government, and the Constitutional Court in Germany didn't hear the case. Um, and Die Tageszeitung had written a small story saying... Um, uh, music teacher from small central west German town of Ludenscheid fails to take government to court. Um, Gregor reached out to Marianne and said, do you want us to help? Um, will you know this and change.org? Um, she'd never heard of change.org. She rarely used the internet, but she thought it was worth a go. Um, so yeah, Marianne is a, is a semi-retired music teacher. She lives in this small central west German town of Ludenscheid um, and had no history in political activism at all. She loaded it on to Change.org and Gregor checked back a few weeks later and she thought maybe, he thought maybe several dozen of, of, of Marianne's friends had, had, had uh, joined. You might be able to tell where the story's going. Um, but at the end of that week, uh, 50,000 German, uh, German members of Change.org joined. The week later, it was 100,000. Um, it quickly tumbled in front of uh, Change.org's boisterous German membership. Um, and suddenly, they had, they had a campaign. Then they decided that they needed, um, they needed legal advice. So Marianne went off and committed herself to 14,000 euros worth of legal advice from Germany's foremost constitutional scholar, Andreas Fissan. 14,000 euros she didn't have. So Gregor starts to panic. He, he thinks of literally the first person that he's going to try and help, he's actually going to bankrupt at the same time. So they, they rush out a microfinancing um, call on the campaign and they can't switch it off quickly enough. They raise the 14,000 euros within two days. They actually suddenly start desperately messaging people to not send any more money um, because they didn't want to send it all back. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of small donations were, were flooding into Marianne's campaign. Last, they, uh, they decided to... Um, to uh, uh, mount a, a different kind of legal challenge, a class action lawsuit. So a class action lawsuit is one where you say that a whole class of people have been harmed. Well, Marianne thought the whole class of people that were harmed by this trade deal was the whole of Germany. So she, she invited the whole of Germany in order to join a class action lawsuit. And again, they didn't really think this was actually going to work. It was actually onerous and difficult. You had to print out a PDF and sign it and physically send it to Marianne's home. Well, the, the postmaster of Ludenscheid um, suddenly began to realise that Marianne was receiving rather more mail than she had in the past. Um, a kind of trick of letters turned into a tumble. Um, they had to give the postmaster his own car, uh, and Marianne's home filled up with letters. It became the largest class action lawsuit in the history of Germany. Um, and then she finally, of course, when she dropped off her class action lawsuit in a pickup truck outside of the German court... Um, did have her day in court. And Gregor remembers, you know, in the Constitutional Court in Bonn, 
you know, the grandly attired, red-robed judges kind of striding into the room, a kind of press frenzy around Marianne, who at this point had become a celebrity in Germany. Um, and then there was a kind of ripple in the courtroom. Um, this tall patrician man had angrily strode in and he was kind of waving away the government's lawyers. Um, his name was Sigmar Gabriel and he was the vice-chancellor of Germany and he travelled, he he's affectionately known in the, German, in the German press as Siggy Pop from his uh, time as culture minister. Um, and he'd driven all the way from Berlin to Bonn to personally defend the case and he strode straight up to Marianne Grimmenstein and he said, you are the woman that's causing me all these problems. Now, what's the point? What's the point of this story? Well, obviously, this isn't about Marianne Grimmenstein. It's not about a trade deal in Germany. It's not about Siggy Pop. It's not even really about change.org. It's that you cannot get a greater imbalance of power than between Sigmar Gabriel and Marianne Grimmenstein, between the vice chancellor of Germany and a retired music teacher from a central West German town. And you'll get no prizes for guessing what happened that day and who actually won that court case. The court, the, the, the court heard Marianne's case, decided there was merit to it, and told the German government to go away and come back with a revised idea of the treaty that would protect kind of constitutional rights within it that Marianne was so concerned about. And now, what had happened here was that the monopolies that political parties have long held have suddenly come tumbling down across the entire world. What we are seeing is mobilisation and counter-mobilisation across the whole of the political spectrum. It used to be so difficult and so expensive and so time-consuming and so costly to mobilise people politically and to get the message out. And suddenly this had become free and easy. And it wasn't just Marianne Grimenstein doing this. It was 4chan, it was 8chan, it was the world of alt-tech. It was the manosphere, it was, um, it was Black Lives Matter, it was Blue Lives Matter, it was Me Too, it was everyone. So really what happened in the middle part is that protest had become so much easier. Actually opposing political power had become so much easier. Political parties were just one of a whole range of people that could suddenly do meaningful, effective, significant political mobilisation. So if it feels like the mainstream, whether in the UK or anywhere else, is under attack, from everyone else, it's because they are. They've completely lost their ability to actually control and maintain political conversation, political mobilisation. Choice has suddenly got so much broader. And that is what we're actually living through. It's got incredibly damaging consequences as well, but that's what we're living through right now. So that, this is half of the story. Underneath Trump, underneath Cambridge Analytica, underneath you know, all the scandals around data use, actually what we've seen is hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of new political organisations suddenly using social media to completely rebuild um, and completely redo the way in which they do politics. Um, Beppe Grillo, you know, an Italian comedian, um, went from nowhere to successfully contesting the Italian elections. You know, he didn't need big business, big business backing, just like Marianne, he used microfinancing. He didn't need to speak to the mainstream press. It was all owned by Silvio Berlusconi anyway. He had the most popular blog in Italy. Um, he didn't even need it to build a party machinery. He used meetup groups. I used to, there used to be one in London. It sent an MP back to Italy. But that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story. So, so halfway through we learned that political protest had become so much easier. I think it was much easier to mobilise. But that also brought with it a lot of frustration too. I don't know if anyone spent much time with Occupy, but spending a lot of time with Occupy um, uh, protesters, there's a shared grievance across many of them, which was that it was an amazing tool, social media, for actually bringing people out. And it was a devastatingly bad tool for actually bringing people together into any kind of coherent programme or series of demands. They just didn't know what they wanted. They couldn't work out what they wanted. And that, it was like kind of organisation without organisations. Spontaneous, organic formations on social media actually were really bad at bringing people into a consensus. And this is where this woman comes in. Does anyone recognise her? This, I think, is the politician that is changing the world more than anyone else. Her, her name is Audrey Tang. So Audrey, uh, Audrey started life as a high school dropout at the age of 12 in order to learn more about tech. Um, she went to Silicon Valley uh, and she did what Silicon Valley entrepreneurs sometimes can do. Uh, she retired at the age of 30 uh, and went back to her native Taiwan and became a civic hacker. She was part of a kind of open software movement um, kind of community 
that was beginning to do political agitation too. They were using many of the same tools as Marianne Grimmenstein. Um, they thought that politics was far too closed in Taiwan, it wasn't open or porous enough, uh, and they wanted to change it. So it was called Gov Zero. It was a kind of hacktivist group. Um, they were trying to build better ways for politics to happen. And another trade bill, I'm afraid, this time in 2016, and this one that was seeking to bring Taiwan closer to, to China. Cross-Straits Trade Agreement, it's called. Um, it's a big deal in Taiwan as a civic society member if anything looks like it's bringing you closer to China. Um, and um, people got really worried. And, they, and, the, and the government said, it's an elected government, of course, in Taiwan, it's a democracy, and the elected government said, don't worry, um, we will listen to you, we'll have all these town hall events across, the, uh, across Taiwan. Um, and they completely ignored it and just tabled the bill. They had a majority in parliament, they could do what they wanted. Crowds formed outside of the parliament that evening after the Kuomintang party tabled that, that bill. People were really angry, they were really nervous, they were really anxious. They saw a window open and they dived through it. Hundreds of protesters literally occupied their parliament. They, they felt the need to physically break into a place that they felt so excluded from. And it became the Sunflower Revolution. Days turned into weeks, they refused to leave, they demanded that the trade bill be revoked. Um, and they tried to come up with a better way of actually putting that bill together. What you can see here, all this stuff, this is them trying to do open policy making. Again, another trade bill, another government capitulation. The Taiwan, the Taiwan uh, government uh, eventually revokes the bill. And then something amazing happens. They go to one of Audrey's hackathons. They send a minister to a hackathon and they say, please help us listen better. Please help us ensure that this never happens again. And Audrey goes from being a high school dropout, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, civic hacker, to being the digital minister of Taiwan. And as she becomes digital minister of Taiwan, she tries to do something which I think no other politician in the world has really actually attempted to do yet, which is to remake democracy for the digital age. So she created a process called V-Taiwan. Now, it looks nothing like Facebook. It looks nothing like Twitter. The whole point of this is to gamify consensus. So they do this with regulations and laws. The first one they did with Uber. So imagine this is Uber. Imagine we've got the Uber executives over there. We've got um, taxi drivers over there. We've got representatives of, of rider groups here. We've got academics, or academics everywhere. Um, and we've all got different opinions on what Uber regulations should be. So we're all representatives. We're all these like, little floating, floating circles. And as we start answering questions, we begin to form different groups. It's very likely that the Uber execs are going to be in one corner and the traditional taxi drivers are going to be in the other. But this platform only allowed statements to be seen that not only your group agreed with, but over half of the other group agreed with as well. So any grandstanding, any attempt to play to your own team, you just didn't see it. And it meant that people stopped doing that. They, they started actually to try and find statements and ideals and principles and beliefs which they thought that the other groups might actually also hold. And Uber, you know, this, as in Audrey's words, virus of the mind, um, uh, created eventually through this process a series of consensus items, which Audrey, and every time this is used, Audrey has committed her government to enacting in law. So this is why this is so transformative. This is the first time that digital democracy has been wrapped around power. This is the first time that government has actually said, regardless of what we think as a parliament, what this weird mixed reality scale listening exercise will create. It's, it's actually far more complex than just this. We could talk more about the detail of it if you want in the afterwards. But, but whatever this kind of strange process, some of it's face-to-face -face interview and talking, some of it's online discussion, what this will create, they will turn into law. And it's not just happened for Uber, it's happened for over 25 different forms of law and regulation now. Audrey this year is going to try and get, I think, the constitution of Taiwan changed to reflect the fact that this is now part of what democracy in Taiwan really is. Um, and she sees herself, and this is why I think this is so transformative, is this kind of begins to square the circle. Like right now, most of our experience is actually of a world where protest against power is unbelievably easy... And consensus and decision-making is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And being done with kind of democratic institutions which are too slow, too unwieldy, too unparticipatory for most people actually to have much faith in. But Audrey's beginning to square that circle. She's, she's one of the only politicians in the world that doesn't just want to change what government does. She actually wants to change what government actually is. That's power.
That's political power. How, do I have time for another one? Sure. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll try and make this one quicker, sorry. Um, so that's power and politics. Let's go to a darker place for us. I'm actually broadly actually quite optimistic about power and politics, but, but I, I'm going to go to a, le, a less optimistic one now, criminal power. Um, so I don't know why they let me do this, um, but the police let me go on a cybercrime raid with them. Um, so I was kind of this like, mild-mannered researcher in the back of an unmarked police motorcade, kind of snaking through an evening traffic to arrive outside this like, red brick house on a very normal-looking kind of like, a dormitory residential estate somewhere, somewhere outside of London. Uh, the person that we were there to catch was an iCloud hacker. He was someone that waltzed into people's private digital lives. Now, whether you know it or not, anyone with a smartphone in all likelihood has a, has a cloud backup of one kind or another. And every text, every video, everything that passes through your phone goes onto this cloud backup. Now, he was breaking into the cloud backups of people that he knew, his wife's friends, and he was searching for private section images on those phones. He would begin after they'd gone to sleep and he would be out before they woke up. And none of them, as far as the police could tell, had any idea that this was happening. He'd done this a lot. Um, and it was, so it was called Operation Field Day, this investigation. Finally, he'd been caught. Now, I realised throughout this kind of escapade that there was only one surprising thing about Operation Field Day. There was only one thing that made it stand out, that made it different, or in any way notable. Um, not surprising was that this guy existed. Um, there's, a, there's a survey that researchers like, my, like me pay a lot of attention to, the Crime Survey of England and Wales. It's like the gold-plated Home Office survey. It asks tens of thousands of people across the UK whether they've been a victim of crime. So it doesn't really trust the police stats. It asks people whether they reported it or not. And in 2016, almost casually, they added two questions. They asked, have you been the victim of cybercrime? Have you, have you been a victim of fraud, especially online fraud? And when the numbers came back, they were totally, totally astonishing. The number of crimes that this survey estimated happened in the UK doubled. Doubled. In other words, as much crime was happening through the internet as all other crime types put together. We suddenly realised that you were 20 times more likely to have your social media accounts burgled than your house. We realised that you're more likely to receive a virus than all forms of violent crime put together. Um, we realised that online fraud was the easily the most common crime in the country. So it wasn't surprising this guy existed, nor actually that he was part of a closed forum on the internet where thousands of others were also there trading private section images like a form of currency. Not surprising at all. There were thousands upon thousands of people, not only in the UK but across the world, that had been drawn to this kind of dark new route to power. Um, and he was just but one of them. Um, he was, I, I don't mind admitting to you that kind of on the way to this raid, I was kind of nervously thinking, like, what if this like, somehow comes down to me? Like, what if he pulls a knife or a gun? You know, would I have what it takes to kind of do something? What if he kind of jumps out of a window? Um, and it seems foolish now, because he was the least hardened criminal I've ever come across in my entire life. I was at least expecting you know, him to be like, led out screaming to the police car. He, when the police opened the door, he couldn't stand. He couldn't talk. He couldn't swallow. Um, he had to be helped into the police car. Um, and that shouldn't have been surprising either. Um, because after this had all finished, I decided that I needed to learn how to hack. I needed to learn how to do some cybercrime. So I got a hacker friend of mine to teach me how to do some cybercrime. Um, do you all know what ransomware is? Yeah, so it's like one of the most common forms of cybercrime you get. Basically, you click a dodgy link, locks your computer, um, asks for Bitcoin for you to restore the computer. Now, um, I thought, uh, I, so, so he, he told me how to do, he taught me how to do ransomware. So we open the laptop, and this is what I see. Does, does, any, does anyone recognise anything weird about this? This piece of software with which I can only do illegal stuff. There is no legitimate use of this software whatsoever. Well, it just looks normal. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, got, it's got banner advertising. Oh, right. It's got, it's got tooltips. It's got help menu. This is easy to, this is easy to use than Microsoft Words. You know, I, kind of, I had this vision of a kind of hacker, you know, being this kind of savant teenage coder genius, you know, in some like darkened attic, 
wearing a hoodie, you know, typing for some reason binary code into a green screen computer. Um, you know, I opened this up and it said, hi Carl, do you want to commit cybercrime today? And I clicked yes. <laughs> and then it said, great, how long do you want your campaign to go on for? And there's a drop down menu for two months. And it says, how much Bitcoin do you want people to pay, to pay for your campaign? And I just typed in three. You know, and if at any point this was unclear to me, there was a really, really helpful, very, very, very specific tooltips menu, which I just clicked on. And if the functionality in this wasn't enough, this is upselling me to the next one in the series. This one cost $39, for $499 it could have got Philadelphia. The, the next one in the series, which even more functionality, even easier to use. The barriers to entry in the cybercrime are unbelievably low. An idiot can do cybercrime. No technical skills required whatsoever to do cybercrime. Um, and if this shows my age, that's, that's a picture from the Darknet um, buying one gram of high-quality cocaine for 1.6 Bitcoin, uh, which is rather, rather above the market price, I believe, for a gram of cocaine nowadays. But, but again, look, look, this is how easy it is now to commit crime. There's the a, there's a Darknet. There, there's a dark market on the Darknet selling drugs. There's Amazon, right? Uh, both of them have clearly marked prices, both of them uh, have sent vendor information, both of them have postage options. The only difference is that on Amazon I am buying food and drink and home decor, and on here I'm buying psychedelic stimulants, and I never had the, I never had the guts to click on custom orders. But it's just so unbelievably easy, like, very, like no technical skills required. So it, this, it shouldn't have been any surprise to me that this guy was an unhardened criminal. It was so easy to do. And you never had to see the victim. You never had to leave your house. You never had to go in the rain. It was just unbelievably convenient form of crime. Um, but he was also doing some quite sophisticated things. And that also shouldn't have been a surprise. Because to understand this, I went to DEFCON. Now, you're, at, you're, you know, you're in Las Vegas. Uh, you're at Caesar's Palace, kind of vast marbled edifice of Caesar's Palace looming above you. you might, maybe you're hung out at Snackus Maximus, um, and suddenly this whole new kind of player comes into town. Shock blue mohawks, born to hunt, written across black t-shirts, blockchain tattoos. You know, and as they arrive, you see, the, you see the bus network up the Las Vegas Strip literally crash, and the casinos start wheeling in their ATM machines. Because once a year, Every year, DEFCON comes to town. Tens of thousands of the world's best hackers all descend on Las Vegas for the world's largest annual gathering of hackers. In front of glowing neon stages, in front of 10,000, literally 10,000 of their peers, the world's best hackers will announce the world's most fiendish hack. So this guy stood up, this is his slide, and said, um, you think your laptop is safe because it's uh, not connected to the internet? Nonsense, I'll hack it anyway. And he hacked a laptop using light. He hacked it using light you couldn't see. Then he hacked it using sound. Then he hacked it using sound you couldn't hear. Then he taught everyone a way of subtly adjusting the gamma ray settings on the screen of the hacked laptop to exfiltrate data. Now, none of this had anything to do with the internet. Someone else stood up on stage and said, I can cause pretty much every wind turbine in the world to burst into flames using a, lock and, a stop and go technique. Um, he was actually an academic, Jason Staggs, so I've named him here. Um, and it, as far as I could tell, like, it, this was legitimately kind of like what he could actually do. Um, you know, they were basically pretending to be wind turbine engineers, causing wind turbines, if they wanted to, to, to lock and go, lock and go until uh, the mechanism broke down. But that wasn't really the talk of DEFCON that the year I went. This was the talk of DEFCON the year I went. Deep hack. Um, why, ha why bother hacking yourself when you can teach an AI to hack for you? So this is an AI that's basically learned an exploit itself. Uh, for those, I don't know if there's any, I know there's some computer science, scientists in the room. This is an SQL injection exploit. It's quite a simple way of getting more data than a website wants out of a website. But the point is that the AI found this. It was not taught to do this. It learned how to do it itself. So the kind of prognosis was that the future of cybersecurity is going to be like dueling AIs on both like offensive and defensive sides, dueling maps. Anyway, so there was only one surprising thing. I'll get to the point of Operation Field Day. Not surprisingly existed. 
We've lived through a startling, startling transformation in how and where crime happens. Not surprising that he was unhardened, the barrier's entry really low. Not surprising he was doing some really sophisticated things. Um, hackers, or at least the most capable of their number, are capable of, 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 of totally astonishing feats of digital prowess, and they keep learning from each other right at the moment when the rest of us just think that the, phone, the phones in their pockets are black boxes of magic. Uh, the hackers are pulling them apart and understanding how they work. Um, the only surprising thing was that he was caught, was that he existed. Now, I can't go into detail, but essentially he was unbelievably unlucky. Like, a thousand things could have gone differently and this guy never would have been caught. A thousand things. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is actually quite simple. It wasn't that the police didn't have the tech. It wasn't that the police didn't have skills. Actually, the police officer that I was shadowing within one cybercrime team was an amazing hacker. He was just as technically savvy as anyone I saw at DEF CON. He was brilliant. Like, there's probably not enough of him in the police, but there are some. The only reason he was caught was, uh, actually, the only reason... I need, to, I need to find a way of telling this without talking about specifics. Um, far too, almost everyone that's like him isn't caught because of geography. Now, as I spent more time with cybercrime teams, I learned that time and time again, basically almost every single investigation founders, because the perpetrators were in one place, the victims were in another, the um, evidence of the third, fourth, and fifth country, and, and law enforcement just simply can't reach across borders and bring them into British courtroom. Crime on the internet, like anything on the internet, passes unbelievably easily across borders. Law enforcement does not. Uh, and that means that we're living through, I think, the worst crisis of law enforcement in the history of modern policing. Half of crime is not happening on the internet, barely any of it is caught, the vast majority of it isn't reported, um, and um, I can't see how the police can deal with this without utterly profound reorganisation of how the police work and what they do. Um, so, there's the book. Um, I don't know why they called it The Death of the Gods, um, but it's about power. <laughs> Um, I think its initial name was Power, actually, but they, uh, they thought that it could be... My publishers thought that that might be confused with electricity. But I'll tell you the kind of basic... In a final minute, I'll tell you the basic thesis here so you don't actually have to read the book. Um, and that is that... So when I set off to write this, my editor basically... He asked me a, a question, which was, are we living through a time of more liberation or more control than ever before? And I kind of, like... Noticed with growing horror as I went from place to place, all these, you know, looking at politics, looking at media, looking at crime. I felt I, 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 I realised I couldn't answer that question because what I saw was both more liberations and more controls, both in greater quantity than before. And I realised actually that was the nature of the digital age. We're living through an onset of both. Both amazing people like Marianne um, and Audrey Tang and plenty of others that, that you haven't met. Um, who were kind of using these new routes to power via technology in really amazing ways. Uh, but then also, um, also people like the cyber criminal and darknet assassins and lots of other people you also haven't met were using it in really horrible ways. So really what I thought was happening deep down was that power itself was changing. Um, we've always tried to cage power. We've always tried to control it like norms, professional standards, the law regulation. These are like bars of the cage around power. It controls how you can reach into my life and how I can reach into yours. I might think you all should be vegans, but there's only, I can't hold a gun to your head and force you to be one, right? I, I'm actually not a vegan whatsoever. But, you know, there's, there's ways in which you can legitimately try and change someone's behaviour in ways you can't. Um, but in place after place, whether it was all these different areas, power had broken out of this cage. It was wild. And that's what I think we're living through now, an age of wild power, where it can be used both to liberate and also to control us in ways which are just far less rules-bound than in the past. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Carl. That was, that was superb. So I'd like to open it up for questions. I have questions, but I will keep my lips sealed until I get an opportune moment. Questions, comments, please. Okay, I, I like to open it up. Um, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I'm trying to think about what we can generalise from your examples, which were, apart from the big thesis of the book, which I, I totally get, and I, I think this idea of the tension between control and d 
decentralization is really where, where we're at, and you've got to look at these things on a case-by-case -case basis. But thinking about how you can broaden out what you showed with your examples, it strikes me that what the internet's always been good at, and we perhaps didn't get this in the early days, is providing a forum for experts of various kinds to use their expertise to make things easier for non-experts. So your examples of the hacking script, I mean, if you look back at the history of hacktivism all the way back to the early 1990s, you know, with groups like Cult of the Dead Cow and the rest of the hacking community that was doing ethically motivated denial of service attacks and things like that, mm. they invented these scripting mm. programs that were very similar to the one that you showed there, where, you know, you download them and you were, you know, decried as a script kiddie or whatever because you didn't have the expertise, but you just input the URL press send and walk away from the machine, and that's how it works. And I think we're seeing that combination... The, the low-orbit iron cannon, don't you know that, the 4chan's DDoS. That's right, yeah, another example. I mean, so there are lots of these, and it, what, what strikes me as really interesting here is it's kind of a coming together of expertise, which actually resides in the hands of relatively few people, with a, a mass desire to play mischief and try and exercise some kind of leverage in a, in a highly uncertain world where people feel disempowered and want to kind of put one over, whether it's in, in the form of criminal activity or whatever. So my question to you is, is this a model that can be kind of expanded into other spheres of life? And I'm thinking about the leadership structures we find, for instance, in the white supremacist community, the alt-right or the online misogynists, and the ways in which ideas and meanings are kind of set up but then become spread through means or through shared codes and languages. So it's that combination of leadership on the one hand, that is often really quite, quite fluid, difficult to identify, but it exists, and then a mass desire um, to participate in these structures, but perhaps on, on terms that are established by others and using technological performances that are often established by others as well. Yeah, no, I think uh, probably that's, that's broadly right. I mean, I think just everything is generally getting easier to do. Yeah. Um, so like one, one area where this is especially true when it comes to the far right is kind of influence operations and information warfare. I didn't really have time to talk about that, but the kind of use of the internet to influence the offline world um, is something which has become more and more important. And if you kind of trace the history of that, at least in my mind, you kind of begin with the kind of early online subcultures that were pouring over like manuals on memetics and, and behavioural psychology and like, you know, early 4chan, but, even, but, but significantly before, trying to work out how, you know, and that they began to work out this grab bag of techniques. You know, they did what we would now call media operations. They trolled Oprah Winfrey's blog saying there were kind of over 9,000 penises in their paedophile network, you know, and she believed them. And she, she warned all of her viewers that she'd been contacted by a giant paedophile network. You know, they, they rigged online polls. They tried to send Justin Bieber to North Korea. Um, they, they, uh, they did sock puppet accounts. And, and, and what happened next, I think, is that all those different kind of techniques of like illicit online influence then became commercialized in exactly the same way that all that crimeware was, you know, was, was, was essentially the commercialization of hacking in a, in, in a different way. Um, and that just opened up for ever, anyone to do that had, that had you know, 30, 40 dollars. Um, so an idea that I'm actually really interested in at the moment um, is, is kind of friction. It just feels like we live in a frictionless world where like everything is getting easier. It's get, you know, I mean, it's getting, you know, deep fakes are going to become very prevalent very soon. It's getting easier to mimic other people. It's getting easier to spread ideas and, and, and ideas which are frictionless themselves to be themselves seem to be the ones that are spread and of course the far right online uh, subcultures are the ones that understand that better than anyone else and they're far better at packaging up memes and, and virals than the mainstream um, so I, I've become maybe I'll write my next book on this but I've become like really interested in friction like a, a frictionless world of what that means and it and it certainly seems to me anyway that actually we probably need to make parts of our lives like more difficult again because I think like under this idea that being connected is a liberation, and this idea that, that frictionless activity is, is inherently good, we've actually made a whole series of really damaging um, behaviours far too easy and convenient to do. Yeah. Like, if you interview cyber criminals, like a lot of them, like a lot, one really consistent trope was um, it didn't feel like I was breaking the law, it just felt like I was pushing something into a computer. 
you know, I, I, whilst actually the harm they were doing was, was tremendously real, they never had to come to terms with it. It felt like a game. I think that it's something about the nature of the digital, the promise, you know, the promise of digital technologies, not just on the web, but in terms of, you know, how companies operate, how universities operate, the rise of the centralized database and easy access to it. There's something about templating and scripting activities. So it's that particular affordance, data, centralized data, templating, scripting, making stuff easier, that comes face to face with human frailty of various kinds, and it leads to these kinds of outcomes. And as you say, you think, oh, I'm just, I didn't even know I was doing anything particularly wrong. Yeah. Because the ease. But my, I think my point is that the, the templates and the scripts have to come from somewhere. So somebody holds the cards in terms of the power. They have the expertise, it might be technological expertise, it might be the designers unwittingly, or platforms. You know, so Facebook introducing live streaming a few years ago, video. Today, we're seeing the, you know, one of the unintended consequences of that with the terrorist attack in New Zealand. So it's, I agree completely about the frictionless nature of it, but I think there are still people who hold the cards in terms of having power to enable the templates in scripted. Right, I mean, it, it's who controls friction. Sure, yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, like the, the friction architects. Like, how easy is it to yes, join? Yeah. How easy is it to join Facebook? How easy is it to leave Facebook? And like, and quite a lot of kind of um, like the ultimate removal of friction in a sense is like default settings, like decisions that are kind of baked into life in such a fundamental way we don't even know they're decisions. You know, so yeah, for sure. I mean, like it's it's. Uh, the, the, the holders of power are in many ways the people that can use technology to make certain kinds of behaviours easier or more difficult and in doing so changed all possible and in doing so have changed the world kind of without actually making the argument for it right I mean this is all being like blockchain bitcoin is a great example people hate states they hate centralised banks don't ever you know but don't mount a legal challenge don't try and change things politically just build technology to make another way possible like, it's a completely different kind of, like, sense of, of, of political and social agency, like, just through te technological permissibility. But, um, you know, I mean, yeah, a lot of the people that are, I think are trying to change the world, both for better and for worse, like, just, just aren't in public debate. They're not trying to change minds. They're trying to change tech. And I saw the so I said my piece, so any other thoughts, comments? Yes, sir. Hi. Um, I was really interested... You mentioned one project about mobilisation, uh, mobilisation, use the phrase, it's kind of you know, occupies now kind of organisation without organisation, use the occupied example with this sense of kind of leaderlessness sometimes. Um, and uh, I work with Hope Not Hate, we studied it right, and um, a phrase we use increasingly is post organisation. So for a lot of fire groups now, they, they lack a traditional leader or they lack a traditional form. And that's in the UK and elsewhere. One thing you sometimes find when they do turn out somewhere is, and there'll be the same kind of incoherence of people turning up for all manner of things, uh, all, all manner of campaigns. But generally, the United thing might be, uh, oftentimes now it's kind of free speech, that kind of thing, but often it's a real kind of uniting around um, conspiracy theories and kind of general. Uh, anti-elites conspiracizing. Uh, but that's quite niche, that's just one area of politics, and obviously it's still got one other thing. And I was interested, because obviously you, you go to various places and talk to people who their motivations maybe to get involved in these various mobilizations will be all sorts, and they won't necessarily, as I said, far it's just one niche. So I was interested to know what other kind of things have united people, especially in this mobilization about Taiwan, but also kind of organising this campaign in Germany, what's, why do people want to do it? You know, why do people want to come together in these kind of slightly leaderless formats? If there isn't, say, a charismatic leader or someone or a traditional party, which they've been a long time member of, what's drawing them in, do you think? If there is something, you know, you can generalise that. To be honest, I actually, I really don't know. Um, like, I, and that, that seemed to be part of it, was that, that it almost feels like chaotic the kind of like the, the, the messages that get heard, the movements that build. Like, there was nothing, and no one could have looked at Marianne Grimmenstein's campaign on day one and thought this is going to end up with, you know, a, a humiliating constitution reversal for the, for the German government. 
Um, in, in retrospect, you can, you can try and boil it down, and, and kind of digital campaigners will tell you about the need for clarity, the need, like, the need to seed audiences, to, to win support, you know, um, champions of the cause early. There's, there's definitely like a, like a new like, handbook for digital campaigning, but, but exactly like why like, there are some things that, that seem to draw people like, in really passionate ways together, I think probably the explanation for that is as multifarious as, the, as human beings are. Um, it comes down to what identities we hold, what relationships we cherish, why we get up in the morning, <laughs> you know, the problems that we see in the world. Um, yeah, probably that sits with the kind of probably the squishier kind of side of, of, of what makes humans humans, I think, and it does with technology. Yeah, one, one of the things I was trying to work out throughout was like how do older and newer kind of power structures relate to one another? Um, and like, it was, it's a bit like the question of like, are we being liberated or controlled? Like, I, I, I just couldn't navigate through an impression that they were both kind of being destroyed and also were actually continuous expressions of the same thing. So, like, it's definitely true that the people that were kind of finding new ways of becoming powerful were still largely male. Um, they were from high-income countries, but, but probably more than anything else, they, they kind of came from technical backgrounds that allowed them kind of quicker and more confidently than anyone else to um, kind of grasp and control the technology that they needed to in order to go through it. But on the other hand, um, I, I, did, I, I really thought that a lot of... Um, a lot of kind of conventional kind of like hierarchies through which you know racial and gender and and and, and national kind of like forms of power actually perpetuated and and continued like really seem to be challenged. Um, now you know I thought that I mean like it, it, this this is another landscape, but um, pro, like the world of professional journalism is collapsing around our ears, um, and it was a reasonably it was a reasonably closed and hierarchical world and. And there are people that are now doing journalism and being journalists and filing audiences. I think they can never would have dreamed of doing that before, before the digital world came along. Um, so, and there are plenty of others. Like in the world of business, we've seen, you know, yes, the tech giants are there, but actually, like large corporates are collapsing. The high street is collapsing. There's lots of large companies that are much less profitable than they were 10 or 15 years ago. In general, the FTSE 100, the FTSE 1000, and the NASDAQ is churning a lot more. So your kind of likelihood of being on there in like five or 10 years' time is less than it was, um, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, a lot of like smaller, more nimble organizations are often the most profitable ones. So hedge funds with a few hundred people actually making far more than, than, than most banks. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, it's definitely true that, that, um, that older power structures like meant something in deciding like who was stepping forwards and who was becoming powerful now. But also older power structures, conventions and organisations I think were really being undermined at the same moment.
I don't think it is. So, I mean, so I, I think they're both sides of the same coin. I think is my point. And I, I know we've kind of we've lived through this like tech lash right now. So there's like a huge number of like writers and journalists that many of whom, you know, including me, were like celebrating Tahrir Square and thinking that the kind of digital world was inherently hostile to kind of authoritarian dictatorships, uh, are now realizing kind of like with horror about all these new forms of control and essentially dictatorships that have emerged, whether they be the overmighty tech giants or, or China or authoritarian states using it or radical extremists, violent extremist groups around the world. Um, I, I, but I, I really genuinely, genuinely don't consider myself like, to be part of that because I think like, it misses out on like, actually like, for many people like, the day-to-day -day, like, tremendous benefits that the internet continues to bring. Like it still does liberate. I mean, it's, liberate, it's, liberating, um, it's liberating just as much as it's, it's, it's oppressing. So I, I'm sorry, I'm going to dodge the question. I, I, I mean, it, it, in, in many ways, I think like what the lesson really is that a liberation and a persecution can actually be the same thing. And a liberation for someone is a, is a persecution for someone else. Um, if you take power out of its cage, People will use it in the ways that human beings have always tried to treat one another. They'll both be tremendously selfless and kind, and they'll be terribly cruel. Um, and like in a way, like pure power, right? You know, in, in all these strange new forms, power that isn't kind of controlled by rules, or far less controlled by rules than it was, like can can cause the more perfect expression of those like fundamental human traits to save or to condemn. Um, so yeah, I think I, as long as we remain you know, stubbornly, persistently doing both, I think that, the, you know, all these new forms of power will, will continue to be used for both. One final question for me. Information is power, and we give an unprecedented amount of personal information away, both our own and other people's, and sometimes without even realising it. Should we be concerned about the level of power of companies like Google and That's a very good question. Uh, yes, we should be concerned. Uh, although I think it's largely our own fault. Um, we've told ourselves this like ridiculous, ridiculous idea that they're kind of more powerful than states, more powerful than politics, and 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 especially in the wake of Brexit, we've just simply had no parliamentary time to actually bring them under democratic control. Like at the moment, the creators of these platforms are. Um, under less regulatory burden than the manufacturer of a pencil crayon. I mean, it's absolutely mad. It's a mad state of affairs. And, and, and we, in a weird way, we kind of expect them to be something which they're not. I mean, we expect them to be the kind of neutral purveyors of a kind of, you know, the guardians of the freedom of the press, bastions of free speech, protectors of the internet. They are companies. I mean, and they have to be companies. Like, it's the, their fiduciary duty of their directors to maximise their profits. They, they, get, they get prosecuted if they don't. Like, they have to do it. So, it, I mean, we've never had private companies in, in this position, I think. Um, uh, we've, uh, um, we, we've, 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 we've formed absolutely no series of rules as a democracy, as a polity, to control them. Um, and really, like, we should be scared of them, but we should be more scared of our inability to kind of politically act to actually come up with some kind of agreement ourselves as, you know, to actually begin to navigate our way through these problems. So, like, and they would love this. Like, I spend quite a lot of time in the tech giants, and like, I tell you what, if we could ourselves define what fake news is, like, they will begin to, they will begin to try and clear it off. Like, but they are terrified of acting on fake news because they don't know what it is. And they know that if they accidentally define it too widely, they'll start like accidentally like taking off huge swathes of political conversation. Um, like likewise, for for uh, they they just simply don't know what is legal or not for people to say on social media, and we don't know. 
The law is an utter mess. Like, the laws that we're using at the moment were all drafted before the age of social media, many of which were to protect, protect the blushes of um, telephone operators, switchboard operators, genuinely. It's also, by the way, illegal under the statute to actually troll someone online. You can have two years in prison for lying on a public communications platform, believe it or not. Um, so, yeah, we should be scared of them, but, 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 but not because they're anything other than what we expect companies to be. They're just big, rich, data-rich data companies. Um, and they, if, we, if we do act as a democracy, like they, will, they will conform to the law that we say they, they have to. Um, and I really hope, like, at some point, if Brexit ever ends, like, we, we, can, we can begin to... We can begin to um, and I hope many of you will be involved in this as well, have the discussions that we need to as to what the right regulations will be. Actually, I mean, DCMS is probably going to uh, release a white paper next week announcing a new internet regulator, so that'll be the beginning of the discussion. But there are some really bruising, difficult, thorny debates that are going to be had on this in the months to come. Thanks very much, Carl. That was great. Um, just like to show our appreciation again. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, say hello to me on Twitter if you want, and uh, and do, yeah, do uh, do ask Andrew if you want my email or whatever. I'm really happy. I know there's lots of researchers doing really interesting, amazing stuff on this kind of stuff here. So so please do reach out to me. I'd really like to know what you're working on. Thanks very much.